0: Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. This right here is an unassuming dash. Uh, There's not much to it, um, but that dash for every single one of us is going to hold within it a story of your life. Each and every one of us, from oldest to youngest in this room, we're going to end up six feet deep. Every single one of us. Life will end. And there will be a tombstone, and there will be the date or the year of your birth, and the date or the year of your death. And in between is going to be a dash. And within that dash is it's a pregnant dash with a full life in it. Life of joy and of tears, of ups and downs, of trauma and of beauty. All of our life will be rendered down to a dash. And that's all that will be left. And the question for us is one day, or rather the statement is that one day our church will also have a dash. One of the things that you learn as you, um, and I'm not a huge traveler, but going uh, back to Israel and to Jordan and looking at some of the older churches that are there, that have been there for thousands of years, and as you read scripture, and as you read particularly the first couple books of Revelation, you hear about all these churches that were planted, and, and churches that are now in ruins, that are just simply not there. The idea... That Anchor Southwest, whether it's here or in Panania, will be here in a thousand years is just something that I think we need, to, we need to let go. This church will have a dash. And there will be new churches and new works and new waves of God's spirit that are going to move through this land. But we will have a dash. And one of the things that we need to ask ourselves as a church is that what will we fill that up with? If we were to write our obituary as a church, as Anchor Southwest, what are we going to fill this dash up with? with. There's another way of asking the question is, is that when it's all said and done and we need to pass the baton, as Panania is passing the baton on to us, when it's all said and done, what will be said of this church? What will we fill this dash with? Another way of asking it is what is going to be the measure of our success? What will we use to measure the success of this church? If we were the Corinthian church and we were asked the same question, I'm not sure what they would have verbalized, but I'll tell you this, their actions would have revealed what their true heart and desire was, because it's easy to speak the truth, it's much harder to live it. We can speak the truth, we can say we believe one thing, but we can live lies. And there were four particular lies that the Corinthian church was prone to believe about itself, about what was truest and deepest about their community. They were tempted to believe four lies about what the measure of their success was going to be. Because they were these things, and and, and these are are things that they would sacrifice for. Uh, These were things that they were willing to divide over. And the first false measure of success that Paul dismantles is the one that says that our church is a success if we display gifts of the Spirit. This is, this is what he starts off with. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Now, don't get it twisted. This is not beat up on Pentecostal hour. I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and I, I love my Pentecostal roots. Paul himself in the next chapter in verse 14, uh, chapter 14, 18, will say, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. That's what Paul, that's Paul's words in the very next chapter. So this is not to beat up on speaking on tongues. The point is that there was a portion of folks in the Corinthian church that identified so closely and so deeply with the gift of speaking in tongues that they made it their measure of success. That if they didn't do this or didn't do this more than others, then they were a failure. And Paul's rebuke is sharp. I am nothing but a noisy gong or clanging symbol, if all I care about is speaking in the tongues of men, and I want to speak in the tongues of angels, by the way, like I would love for that gift, but he's saying you you pursue that without love, you are nothing but noise, nothing but noise. And we turn from our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, we turn to our own reformed, theologically conservative camp. In verse 2, the beginning, he says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, this lie is tempted to believe that our success will be found in our theological purity. And so when, if we believe the right things perfectly over and against other camps, then we will be successful. And don't let it twist it again theology is vitally important to the health and the life of the local church. Paul is the greatest theologian the church has ever seen. There's no one else who pursues more theological clarity than Paul. But listen to this. When that becomes the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal Rather than something that's very, very important, it actually ruins everything. Good and clear theology is important. It's really important. But when we turn what is good into God, into what is ultimate, we ruin everything. Good theology, and I've said this and I will continue to say this good theology does not save you. Jesus saves you. Good theology does not save you. Jesus does objectively, 2,000 years ago on the cross, as he bore the wrath of the sin of the world, for the sin of the world. He saves you. Even so, we will pursue good and clear and robust theology at Anchor Southwest, but it could never become the measure of our success. Spiritual gifts cannot be the measure of our success. Purity of our theology cannot be a measure of our success. And then he goes on. And if I have have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love. I am nothing. So gifts, theology. Now he turns to the type of faith that will chuck mountains into the sea. Have you ever seen, have you ever thought about Jesus saying that the sea, like the size of a mustard seed, if you have faith of that size, you can tell this mountain to jump into the sea and it will listen. Even that cannot be the measure of the success of this church. Performing miracles could never be the final goal of the church. It's wild when you think about it, that wonder-working, miraculous power is not the final authenticator of whether or not we are keeping in step with God. That can happen in other ways. I'm not saying... Paul is saying, I am nothing if we have all the faith in the world. How many times in your life have you prayed for more? faith. How many times have we yearned for more faith, and yet we can have all the faith in the world Paul is saying, I am nothing. So the church that makes speaking in tongues the ultimate authenticator, the measure of their success, the church that makes knowledge and theological acumen the ultimate authenticator, the measure of their success, the church that makes wonder-working faith the ultimate authenticator of their success success, the measure of their success. They all fail. Paul goes after the Pentecostals. He goes after the Reformed folks. He goes after the Charismatics. And finally, he goes after the folks who make love, uh, who make loveless justice the goal of their church. He says, if I give away all I have, all I have, if I give everything away and I deliver up my body to be burned, I don't even know how you can do that without love. But he says, if I do that, But have not love. I gain nothing. Nothing. We can give it all away. We can pursue justice. And yet, if we make justice the ultimate goal of the church, Paul says we gain nothing. Now let me just say this, that whether we are in line with what Paul is saying here, whether we believe that we should or even could speak in tongues or not, I'm not arguing about that today. Paul is clear that speaking in tongues is a good thing in this context. Paul is clear that knowing theological truths is a good thing. Paul is clear that having faith is a good thing. Paul is clear throughout Scripture that justice is a good thing. We will be a justice people here. These things are essential, and yet these essential things cannot be, could never become the final authenticator of who we are as a church. And that thing that thing that must taint all of the things, is love. He says this in verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Love must pervade our Pentecostalism, if that is where we are. Love must pervade our reformed, clear theology. Love must pervade our charismatic faith. Love must pervade our pursuit of of justice and so under it all through it all above it all the very center the very center of this church must be the cultivation of love in christ paul is saying that you can understand all mysteries you can understand everything in the world to know you can understand romans 9 to 11 perfectly he's saying and have not love and you are nothing nothing short of love, is the operating center for Paul, and nothing short of love will be the operating center of this particular church. And throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to love one another. It's not just here. It's not just Paul. 1 John 4, 19 says this, we love because he first loved us. And this is love that one lay his life down for his friends. And this is true because love is laced within the fabric of the universe, because God is the architect of love. We've had a bit of a divorce with culture. And I don't know if you've experienced divorce in your life, if, you're, if you're, uh, uh, your parents were divorced, or, or if, you are, uh, uh, if you've experienced divorce yourself, but what happens in a divorce? Uh, things go two separate ways. Cars get split up, houses, children. There's been a, a, a bit of a divorce and we've somehow, the church has lost love. And we've sort of abdicated this mushy, soft love to the world. And when we start to think about love in the church, we think, love can't be. Love, love isn't strong enough. It must be something else. But if we think that the love of God is not strong enough to be the very center of our universe, we have not understood God's love. Beloved, 1 John 4, uh, 7 says, beloved, right? Loved ones, loved ones. That is your truest identity here. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Christ, if you have decided to follow him, the truest thing about you is that you are loved. Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But this is the kicker. Anyone who does not love God, verse 8 I stay away from 1 John. I've said this, if I'm forced to go to 1 John, I'll go there. But this is what it does to me. Anyone who does not know God, uh, sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see, we can say we know God all we want. We can say it till we are blue in the face. The world is not waiting for us to tell them Jesus loves you. That means very little to a people who are outside of the church most of the time. What the world is waiting to see is a community that is formed in the ways of love. Leslie Newbigin will call this the hermeneutic of the gospel. Hermeneutic is just another way to say it's the science and the art of interpretation. So when the world looks at us, when those who are outside of the faith look in, do they see a people who love one another truly? Or do they just see people who, whether they were in the church or not, would still like each other because we like the same things, we speak the same way? We can doll ourselves up have a religious show here on Sundays, but do we love? If anyone says, I love God, 1 John goes on to say in verse 20, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let that just settle in your soul and in your gut right now. If anyone says, I love God, but does not love his brother or his sister who the Messiah died for, we really don't love God. Dorothy Day said, I really only love God as much as I love the person I like the least. Ugh. So I want to give my life, my whole life with Paul. I want to pour out my life as a drink offering so that this church would be formed in the ways of love. And by doing so, we will continue to partner with God to bring life and light and peace and joy and hope and renewal to our world. And I'm talking about love, real gritty love. Already, we've been in this community for two and a half years or so. And there have been times in the beginning where I warned everyone. I said, this is sweet now. We all like each other, but trust me, we're going to rub up against one another one day. And then, when the rubber hits the road, when we have to live life together, will we love? The love of God is the most powerful force in the universe. And it's the love of God that creates the communities like this. This is the place. These are the relationships where we work out the practice of love. And love is the primary characteristic of the disciple of Jesus. And I'm not talking about general love, right? It's easy, to lo- it's easy to say for me to stand up here and for you to go out and say, we love the world, or we love this city, or I love my neighborhood. It's easy to say that. The 18th century Russian novelist Dostoevsky he wrote this in his famous brother's Uh, Karamazov. And listen, who would have thought that a Puerto Rican from Brooklyn is sitting here in Sydney quoting an 18th century Russian novelist? Not me, uh, but here we are. The more, he says, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love humanity in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. Like, why do you have to breathe that way? Why do you choose so loudly, right? That, that's just, that's people, right? I know from experience, he goes on, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedoms. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Have you ever had that? You've had that. You know you've had that. Like, you're on your second cup of coffee. It's time to go. Another because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. It's easy to love humanity. It's easy to love in general. It's very difficult. We must be formed in the ways of love to love in particular. And so we must choose, will we be a community where love is formed in us and expressed through us, or will, be just, will love just be another vague value of ours? Love in particular is the gospel. The God who is transcendent and overall comes near particularly, in a particular time, in a particular place, leaving the realm of heaven and entering the realm of earth and blood of sin, of darkness and flesh. Jesus is love incarnate. And let me, let me ask you a question. What did we do when love appeared? When love incarnate appeared? When holiness appeared? What was humanity's just automatic impulse? What do we do with love? What did the governments do with love? What did the religious establishments do with love? What did the crowds do when they saw Love. Love coming into the world was like a foreign object in the body. We did everything we could to get it out. When love showed up, we crucified it. That's what we do. That's what humans do. And when love showed up, what we killed it. We killed the author of life, Luke writes in the book of Acts. And what we didn't know was that we were actually crucifying life. What we didn't realize at the time was that we, as we murdered Jesus, it wasn't duty that kept him on the cross. It wasn't obligation that kept him tied to the cross. It was love. It was joy. Come back with me to Hebrews 12 real quick where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that was set before us. Listen to this, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, who? The founder and perfecter of our faith. Who? For the duty that was set before him. For the joy. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus love himself, love incarnate, Why did Jesus endure the cross? It was joy. It was the joy that was set before him. He was thinking of something as he endured the spitting and the shame and the nakedness and the pain, both spiritual and physical. As he took on the humiliation and the nails. What was he getting? What was he thinking of? What was the joy that was set before him? What what did Jesus gain in the cross? The world? He had it. The service of the angelic hosts had it. Power? Had it. The Father's love had it from eternity past. What is the thing that Jesus gains because of the cross? What is the object of his joy as he is bearing the shame of the cross he gets his people he gets you he gets the church he gets to populate the new heavens and the new earth with repentant and love sinners like you and me that when we receive the love of god for ourselves Then and only then, when we hear the words, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. When we hear that for ourselves and not just for the person next to me or not just for the person that one day God will make me to be. When we finally settle with the fact that God likes you and God loves you and that God wants you. It's then and only then that you will have the spiritual power to become a conduit of God's love. That is the only way we cannot muster this up. We cannot pretend like this is true for us. We just can't. We have to, ourselves, receive the love of God. And it's only then, when we receive the love of God in particular, not just for you generally, but you with your warts, you with your sin you with your dysfunction and your trauma and your continued messiness as you stumble forward in this life. It's only then and only then when you receive the love of God that you can ever, ever become a conduit for the love of God yourself. And you become enabled. There is such freedom to love recklessly because you've been loved. We must allow the love of God for us to melt our hearts before we can pass it on. And so I want you to do one thing as we, as we close here together and as we take communion together. There's one simple thing I want you to do as you think about this, as you go away, is simply to pray and to pray one prayer until the love of God rests on you. Praying consistently, this one simple prayer from Ephesians 3 has the potential to unleash a torrent of God's love in and through your life. This is what he prays, Paul, in Ephesians 3. He says this, I bow my knees before the Father. As he was thinking about the churches in Ephesus, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant us To be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength too. Now let me ask you a question. Let me pause real quick here. When I pray for strength and when I pray for power, I'm usually praying for power so that I can do something. Let me love others better let me serve this church truer and deeper let me love you more God let me get through this day let me help me to love give me the power to love my spouse and love my kids as they need it's normally a prayer that we would have the power to do something but before God answers the prayer that we would have any power to love or to do something else he has to answer another one in fact the power for the prayer for power can't be answered until this one is prayed first. Because before we have the power to love God, before we have the power to love others, we must first receive power to even receive God's love. God's love, listen, God's love is of such a nature that you cannot naturally receive it. God's love is of such a nature that the only way you can become even capable of receiving God's love is that he would enable you, that he would give you a special power to receive God's love, and we think that love is weak, that we need some kind of equipment. We, we need something, we need a space we need something else, something that we do not have to even receive God's love. How hard is it for us to sit here and believe that God likes me, that God loves me. We must receive power to receive the love of God. His love is of such a nature that we need His divine help to receive it. Being rooted and grounded in love, we pray that we can have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ That surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Imagine with me as I close, and as I do not invite the band up today, imagine with me that as a church, if we committed to praying for the power to not do something initially, but simply to receive the love that God has for us in Christ, imagine. If as a church we were committed to not making the measure of our success as a church things that fade or things that perish. Imagine if as a church we were unleashed into the world with the gospel of being sure that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Just imagine with me what a beautiful community that could be. We can love now only because love has been revealed on that cross 2,000 years ago, particularly. And so I want to pause together to consider the gospel as we take communion together. It's over at the back here. And so help us, Lord. Help us to cultivate grateful hearts. Help us to cultivate thankfulness in our souls, in the pit of our stomachs. Help us to not live lies. Help us to not think that our gifts will be the measure of the su- success of the church, that our budget will be the measure of the success of this church, that our seating will be the measure of the success of this church, but help us to live radically beautiful, ordinary lives that do nothing else but enjoy you, Jesus, and point others to you. We love you, and we, it's in your name that we pray. And the church said, amen. amen. Uh, there is communion back there. Let's take it back here. I'll come back up and I'll uh, lead us together to take it together.